Welcome to the Maritime Podcast. In this episode, Trade Chairman Chris Heyman is in conversation with Managing Director of Jury Tim Power. The conversation centres around the impact of the pandemic on the port and logistics sectors in the Middle East. Chris and Tim cover several important topics, including regional performance, patterns of trade, north-south trade with Africa, the future landscape of ship repair services, the impact of renewable energy on hydrocarbon demand, and employment opportunities in the region for the next generation of maritime leaders. If you're interested in this conversation and want to explore the Middle East maritime market in greater depth, we'd encourage you to be part of Sea Trade Maritime Middle East taking place at the end of this year in Dubai. To find out more, go to seatrade-middleeast.com. Chris started the conversation with Tim by asking him what changes we can expect to the pattern of trade post-COVID-19, how Middle East ports would be affected by that, and if the region is well prepared for what lies ahead. This is a year of two halves, Chris. The first half of 2020 obviously is dominated by the onset of the COVID pandemic and then the terror, if you like, that the lines experienced at looking into the abyss. Because if you reflect on 2008-9, what happened then? There was a 10% contraction of container volume and the lines lost a fortune. When we were looking, all collectively looking at the situation in, say, the end of Q1, early Q2, we were expecting something similar, like an 11% contraction, I think was the lowest number that was being discussed at the time. Now, for the shipping lines, that's Armageddon. So, of course, it didn't happen, but those first two quarters were a perilous period. One of the most interesting things is if you look at what happened, you see that the freight rates actually in Q2 in the most dangerous time of the whole affair were very stable. And this is because the lines were able to manage capacity in ways that they had never managed to do successfully before. I'm sure that their minds were focused because it was such a a, a public and, and visible sign of danger. But also There's some major structural changes that have happened in this industry that are are not that much commented on, but have changed the environment fundamentally since the great financial crisis. And the two main things that have happened, there's been significant consolidation in the industry in between 2015 and 2018. And in our view, Although people are still buying very large container ships, 24,000 are, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of orders out there now, nobody is building bigger. So our hypothesis is that economies of scale have actually run out now in container shipping. And that means that the behavior is different. You don't have to slash prices in order to grow share, in order to build the bigger and bigger ships and be able to fill them. And so the whole market environment has become one of much greater stability. Now, that gets us through the first half of the year in one piece. And actually, I think maybe even profitably by Q2. And then what you have, of course, is this extraordinary takeoff of demand. The received wisdom is everybody is sitting at home, unable to go out to restaurants, unable to entertain themselves, so they buy more stuff. 
Now, that is a, probably a gross oversimplification, but that, that's the, the general narrative that is being used to explain this. And this is seen particularly in the in the US. And so you have the trans-Pacific trade just rockets in Q3 and continues to rocket in Q4, particularly on the West Coast. I mean, the growth rates are just staggering. Here in the UK, I think at the September volumes in Felix, there were something like 30% above the seasonal norms. So you had this extraordinary bounce in demand. At the same time, you have inefficiencies in the intermodal supply chain due to COVID. In LA Long Beach, you would have seen the headline saying, you know, we've got a lot of people who are actually ill with COVID. So we're short of dock workers. So in a wide variety of locations for a wide variety of reasons, you have everything slowing down. This is a major problem for ports in many places. Yards are becoming congested because the boxes are sitting there. A famous UK example is that 11,000 TU of personal protective equipment sitting for ages in Felixstowe, completely jamming up the port. And you have a variety of these things, which means that the container productivity of the boxes plummets. And you get to a point in sort of late Q3, early Q4, where actually there just aren't enough containers in Asia to meet demand. And I interviewed Vincent Clerk from Musk towards the end of last year. And what he was saying was, actually, the intermodal transport system is very lean. And that's hardly surprising because particularly the container shipping lines have made no money for a decade. So they're not going to be investing in surplus capacity if they, if they can possibly avoid it. So when you get a situation where productivity is, is starting to plummet and demand is rocketing, there's no slack in the system. And I suppose the last point to say is that clearly for customers still, for many goods, not all perhaps, but for many goods, the container shipping freight rates are actually a pretty small proportion of total landed costs. And although the shippers won't like it and they'll scream and shout, in the end, they will pay. And so you have this probably unprecedented series of factors coming together, more favorable structure in the liner industry, really sudden surge in demand after a period where everybody expected demand to be very, very weak. And then emerging problems due to inefficiencies in the intermodal supply chain that's just taking out capacity. And that's it. And then it just rolls away. I guess the next question is, how long is this going to last? The freight rates we track at Drury, we track global freight rates all the time. We can see that on the indices that we're generating, they're not continuing to rise. Our world container index now appears to be at a plateau. But it's clear that we are not, in terms of the efficiency in ports, and we've had we've been monitoring um, the situation in, in a number of major ports, but you have continued vessel delays in LA Long Beach. I think in February you had often of 30 ships waiting to berth. You have in Europe, I think even Antwerp has had vessels diverted away. Liverpool's had a service taken away now because of delays. So these efficiencies have not yet disappeared. And I think we would expect them probably to be lasting until Q4. So maybe Q4 this year or early following year, things will start to normalize. How do you expect that the major liner operators will react to this period of sustained demand and high freight rates? Do you expect that there will be a return to significant ordering of new capacity? or not? Since the beginning of the year, there is. The order book in January this year was 2.4 million TU of standing capacity, which is, was equivalent to 10.1% of 
the existing fleet. Since then, another 97 vessels have been ordered, equivalent to 900,000 TU of capacity. So the order book is now at roughly 13.5% of the fleet. Let's assume that everything is delivered over roughly three-year period. That's a sort of four, 4.5% growth rate, which is not in itself particularly alarming. However, the, the, the issue would be, actually, I think most of these ships are going to arrive in 2023. So 21, 22, and 2021, of course, we're, we're expecting strong growth this year. I think we're suggesting something like 9% growth, which is pretty rapid, and then sort of moderating thereafter. So our guess is that 2023 is going to be the year to watch. In the old days, you know, 10 years ago, MSC is on its own. Now it's in 2M. So the deployment of masses of new capacity by an individual operator is more constrained than it was. I suspect that the situation, even if there is some overtonaging, I suspect it will be managed a great deal more effectively than it was in the past. Tim, let's focus now onto the Middle East region, if, yeah. if uh, I may yeah. ask you to do so. And sure. uh, give us your view on how the region has been impacted by these challenging conditions or these conditions in, under the pandemic and what the prospects are for substantial and significant recovery. Well, I think the first thing to say in general is if we look back a year, we were in the oil price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And oil, I think, bottomed at about $20 a barrel. That's in addition to the emerging threat of COVID. And it is still true, despite all the efforts being made by all the states in the region, that oil is the main generator of wealth. So I think when we were looking at this market a year ago, our big concern was that actually the earning power of the region was going to be hit really hard if you ended up with a, with a sort of prolonged oil price war. Now, OK, that was, it turned out that that was relatively short-lived and, and oil is now at something like 68, or Brent is, I think, $68 a barrel today. So the situation is much more favourable. We, I think, have been surprised, and perhaps we shouldn't be, at how resilient trade has been. And this is not just globally, but it's also specific to the Middle East and region. We've done a comparison of regional port volume, say Q4 2020 versus Q4 2019. And what we see actually is that almost all global regions are surprisingly up. We group in the way that we do the categorization, we group the Middle East with South Asia. So that is not by any means one of the fastest growing regions, but it is up by 5% year on year. So Q420 is is 5% up on Q4 19. If we look at individual ports, we can see there's varied performance. Dubai largely is pretty flat year on year. Abu Dhabi or Khalifa is up a bit. Soha has performed strongly. Damam has grown modestly also. Jeddah has been remarkably strong. Uh, I think we've got um, quarter four year on year of about 10% in Jeddah. So actually, in terms of the resilience of the underlying economies and, and I guess, consumer demand, surprisingly resilient. And then I guess there's the the issue of how have the ports performed? You know, the kinds of 
disruption that we have seen in other parts of the world, there has been minor disruption, I think there's some minor disruption in Jeddah, but nothing compared with the experiences in other places. I mean, even in Yantian, you're seeing vessel delays and port congestion, as I've cited, LA Long Beach. North Europe is also problematic, but I think ports in, in this Middle Eastern region have dealt with this crisis successfully and they have kept cargo moving. So I think in a nutshell, the volume performance has been surprisingly resilient and operational performance has been competent and has kept supply chains moving. So I think the sector has, in the region has performed well. Looking a little further ahead, if you like, beyond the impact of the pandemic in the short term, what changes, if any, do you see to the pattern of trade that may be likely to impact the ports of the region that you've just mentioned? For example, in talking to some of Saudi port friends, We hear a lot said about the huge potential in the Saudi ports and the regional ports uh, generally for increased cargo in the north-south trades as Africa becomes a major factor as a generator of cargo. What's your view of any changes to the structure and pattern of trade that we may expect over the next five to ten years? The region is principally... If we talk about the container trade, I think we're going to talk about the crude oil um, trade and perhaps a bit later, but it is mainly an import-driven trade of all sorts of um, consumer items, and then there will be project cargoes and machinery and other sorts. So if that is the principal driver of container traffic, then there's simply a question of where does this stuff come from? The moment it's coming from the Far East and particularly China, could there be switches in sourcing that might mean it moved the sources switch to Africa? I think in principle there could, but I don't think there is evidence of great industrial development going on in Africa. So I don't see, for example, that African-made garments or footwear would in the short run be displacing Far Eastern manufactured goods. So I'm not sure. It would be interesting to talk to your Saudi friends to see what kind of goods they think are are likely to emerge from from Africa. But I I think the timescale for African development, it it must happen one day, but I think a five-year timescale looks short to me. Tim, you mentioned earlier on the remarkable shift in the oil price. As you say, $68, $69 around that level right now from a very low base last year. How has the oil price affected the crude oil tanker trades and the product tanker trades? And what kind of movement do you expect in the year or two ahead? Let's talk about crude oil demand to start with. What we saw in 2020 was a a contraction in in crude trade of roughly 8%, both in terms of ton miles and in terms of, of volume. And bearing in mind that actually crude trade had contracted also in 2019 and 2018 by much more modest amounts, admittedly, but it had contracted. This is a very challenging situation. Projections we're using, we are saying that essentially seaborne trade in crude oil will not return to 2019 levels until 2023. The return to growth, there is growth in 2021, 
but it is not a strong rebound. And I guess what we also bear in mind is that there are large crude oil inventories around the world. There's backwardation now in the futures market. This overhang of inventory is going to come back into the market, and that will also have a knock-on effect on, on seaborne trade. So the outlook for growth in seaborne trade volume and ton miles, we think is pretty weak. And of course, the product trades will bounce back more strongly. Having said that, that's on the back of a much, much worse contraction. We estimate that product trade ton mile demand was down by more than 25% in 2020. We're expecting something like a 22% rebound in 2021. But once again, we are not projecting that you get back to ton mile demand in 20 levels of in 2019 until early 2024. So the growth rates that we have, to be blunt, they're not very exciting. And we are quite gloomy about the crude and product markets, particularly, particularly the crude market, which uh, I, mean, I think the VLCC operators are putting it bluntly on their knees at the moment. Um, the outlook is not bright. And of course, even setting aside the longer term concerns that I mean, anyone in this industry will have about in which year do we reach peak crude oil demand? Maybe a general consensus that would be in 2030. But what happens if it's actually not in 2030? What happens if it's in 2025? Because the VLCC fleet is not especially old. So I think there are lots of challenges for these tanker markets, lots of challenges. Tim, uh, one of the great strengths of the Middle East region is that it provides uh, one of the world's biggest concentration of expertise in ship repair. What's your estimate of the likely demand for ship repair and conversion services coming out of this very complex situation that you've described? We don't feel that the ship repair demand will have contracted so much in 2020. If vessels are operating and they're complying with the regulations, there are, you know, what are the sources of ship repair demand? The principal source of ship repair demand is the regulatory requirement to dry dock at specific intervals and in order to maintain vessels to the appropriate standard. So you, you have a combination of two main drivers. One is fleet size and the other is the uh, well, the access fleet, fleet size and fleet deployment, and then also the regulatory requirement. And then there are, there are other things relating to um, obviously the whole question of scrubber fitting, which was quite a major boost. So what's been happening in the, in the ship repair market, in a sense, although it is a global market, for specific vessels on particular routes, it is more local in the sense that you repair particularly where your vessel is becoming empty. You don't send a vessel to China if it's on a North Europe to South Africa trade in order to get it repaired. So the demand for repair in Middle East yards will be highly dependent on the strength of trades in and out of the region. That's the first thing to say. So if trade in and out of the region is getting stronger, that will certainly increase repair demand. In all trades, there are two ends, and obviously, if you're on a, if a, an operator is on a trade between the region and China, then there are many ship repair yards in China that are ready to compete very aggressively for any business. 
And then the whole area of retrofitting of, of, with scrubbers, scrubbers, etc. Certainly the spreads now between the low sulfur fuel and heavy fuel oil are now looking more compelling for the fitting of scrubbers. And so maybe that activity will resume and that could certainly be a source of additional business. So that in the short run, I think will help. The longer term is perhaps more interesting than the sort of so the sort of apparent immediate recovery, which is what is going to happen in relation to new fuels. If you are going to run a vessel on methanol or ammonia or some other renewable fuel, what do you have to do to make that work? Can you retrofit existing vessels or re-engine them to burn these low emissions fuels? And could that be a major generator of work? That seems to be a more interesting longer term prospect than a, perhaps a bounce back from, um, from COVID. Tim, if we look more broadly at the region's engagement with the maritime sector, we've seen some substantial changes in recent years. UAE is a council member of the IMO. Saudis have been uh, leading the way in terms of uh, responding to some of the environmental challenges of the industry. The maritime services sector is uh, expanding in the region significantly. How do you see the way ahead as the Middle East becoming more and more important as a maritime hub? And how will that play out, do you think, in the future in terms of generating job opportunities for the expanding young populations of these countries going forward? Two things. First one is that I think now, probably more than ever before, we should be looking at the maritime sector as part of global supply chains. And if you look at the way that DP World thinks of itself now, for example, they don't describe themselves as a terminal operator or a port operator. They describe themselves as a trade enabler which is a much broader scope. And I think it is helpful, because if we talk about maritime, we may tend to get rather narrow in, in the way that we're looking at it. So I think there is enormous scope, well, there's enormous scope everywhere in the world for countries to develop better supply chain management, better logistics. Uh, and that applies not just to operators who are serving the customers, but to the customers themselves. The logistics teams within major retailers or manufacturing companies have an extremely uh, and now perhaps increasingly demanding job, uh, and it is extremely important. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing is that how do you create, you'll be well aware of me, you've probably presented these things at, at previous events of yours, the sort of leading maritime city awards, and how do these places get catalyzed? Uh, and we, obviously we have the historical model of, of London, which was through initially through coffee shops and through a huge trading network and then uh, a, a massive fleet. All of these things were developed because of the simple fact that you had to have physical proximity. You couldn't do anything unless you could talk to someone or hand them a piece of paper. Now, it, I think there are two questions. What does technology do in terms of enabling maritime sector or logistic sector communities to emerge? And do they become dependent on places? Dubai obviously is now coming up global rankings as a maritime city. And obviously it is, a, it, is a, it is a great port and it's a place where ship owners can work very successfully. Saudi Arabia has major, has, you know, major fleets under its own flag. 
but how this how technology affects all of this is not clear to me but it certainly creates a very connected and very dynamic environment in terms of opportunities maybe i perhaps just put this to, to anybody who's thinking about this sector some great things about it first of all it is real if you are if you are a, a you know working for bari or somebody like this or you're working in jebel ali port you are dealing with the real physical world uh, and so everything you do has a practical value the second thing is it is totally plugged into the global economy and global politics in my pno days i was running our far east and middle east trade during the invasion of kuwait so what did we do with our, the vessels that we were running up the gulf so all of these things affect you immediately so the, the business is totally connected to, it's real it's totally connected to the world and uh, and from my own personal experience endlessly fascinating so i would say it is a great sector to go in it is constantly adapting and changing and there are huge huge challenges facing it in this, particularly in relation to environment and emissions and it's going to need lots of really bright people to uh, to make it work in future that's a really positive note on which to finish tim alas we've run out of time so tim power managing director drury thank you very much thank you chris